The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, friends, it's time to, to do what we love to do here in this church, which is open God's Word together. And so let me encourage you to get a copy of the Scriptures. If you need one, grab the one in front of you in the pew rack, and let's open together to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are looking together in Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is so often called uh, one of the most well-known portions of the entire Bible. There are pieces of this Sermon on the Mount that are wonderfully recognizable, uh, and yet we want to see how they all come together to be Jesus' word to his disciples. Uh, We remember that Jesus is a king, that Jesus reigns over a kingdom, and that kingdom has come to earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has ascended back into heaven, but the kingdom that he has established is here. And it is a reality in the hearts of all those who trust in him, meaning the kingdom is all around us. And in very powerful ways on the Lord's day, the kingdom is right here in our midst. But there are things about this kingdom that we still need to know. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has been speaking about his kingdom. He's been speaking about the nature of the true citizen of his kingdom as he speaks of the Beatitudes. But this morning he's going to tell us even more about the kingdom. And the thing that we want to pay special attention to this morning is that for as much as Jesus has been talking about his kingdom and he's been talking about salvation, and we know the Christian message is a message of uh, salvation and the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus' word to us is a word of grace. For all that Jesus has been saying about that, if you were in the first century sitting on the mountaintop with Jesus as he is teaching, you would have been listening to him so far through chapter 5, and you would have begun to ask a question. Lord, I'm Jewish and I've grown up Jewish all of my life, and I keep hearing about your kingdom, and I keep hearing about grace, but the question you would be asking is, Jesus, what about the law? What about the law? It's interesting that Jesus, so far in the Sermon on the Mount, we are in verse 17, and so far he said nothing about the law whatsoever. And Jesus is frequently accused in his earthly ministry of being a teacher that is actually overthrowing the law. That's why Jewish authorities had such a hard time with Jesus, because they saw him as an enemy to their religion. Because they saw Jesus as overthrowing the law and doing away with it. But what is so important this morning, what was so important then in the first century, and what is so important here and now today, is that Jesus wants, if you are going to be a true citizen of his kingdom, he wants you and I and all hearers of his words to be those who really understand what God's law is and what it's for and what it does. Jesus wants us to have a true understanding of the law of God. Now, when you hear law, most of the times I think we associate negative things with that. We hear law and then we just have in our mind restrictions, what you can't do. 
But Jesus wants us to move away from that notion and have a true understanding of the law of God. And one of the the pictures I want us to have in mind this morning is Jesus calls us to walk on a narrow road. And on either side of that road is a ditch, right? A good road is crowned and has drainage capacities and goes into a ditch on one or both sides of the road. And on the narrow road of the Christian life, there is a ditch on your left and a ditch on your right. And Jesus is calling you to walk that narrow road, but sometimes we find ourselves falling in the ditch on either side. And this morning, I want us to see what are those ditches that we are tempted to fall into that keep us from walking on the narrow path and keep us from being a sincere, mature, growing Christian disciple. Jesus is speaking about that very thing this morning as he speaks to us about the law of God and the life of the Christian. This is essential for our spiritual health this morning. So we need God's help in order to understand these things because they are essential for our spiritual good. So let us pray and ask God's blessing upon his word and then we will hear it in Matthew chapter 5. Let us pray. Lord God, as we open the scriptures together, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would help me as I seek to preach and to teach I ask that you would help us all as we all sit under the authority of the scriptures. Lord, illuminate our minds to give understanding to what your son is speaking here. Illuminate our hearts that where there are areas of darkness and disobedience, that you would illuminate with your spirit those places that we might more fully obey. Lord, we want to be sincere Christian people. We want to grow in Christ. We want to know more about what you would say to us. And so now we pray in the authority of the scriptures, which you have authored by your own spirit. Teach us this morning, Lord, we pray. Illuminate our minds. Give understanding, we ask. In the power of Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. And now, hear God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Through verse 20. This is the word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts as we listen to the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5. You have an outline in your bulletin that I hope is going to be helpful to understand what Jesus is saying. Because let me acknowledge that in just these few verses, uh, Jesus is saying 
far more than we could ever hope to cover in just one sermon in just a few minutes. And so I want to be as clear as possible about what Jesus is saying, what he is doing, because the issue of the law of God and the Christian life is so important that it permeates the entire teaching of the New Testament. Every apostle that writes letters in the New Testament writes on the topic of what does the law of God have to do with your life? What are we supposed to do with the law of God? What is our relationship to the law as a Christian believer? And one of the temptations that we face is that if we come to the New Testament and say, law, I thought that's Old Testament. If we think that law is just Old Testament and grace is just New Testament, we will be set on a crash course to misunderstand the entire message of the Bible. So, we want to understand two things. The first, very briefly, but then secondly, in more detail, we want to understand, first of all, what is the law? What is the law of God? Just so that we're all completely understanding what Jesus means when he talks about the law. So first, let's ask the question, what is the law? And then secondly, in the entirety of this section, what is Jesus saying about the law of God and the life of a Christian? Or, what does the law have to do with you as a Christian believer? So, what is the law? And then secondly, what is Jesus saying about the law of God and the life of a Christian? So, first of all, Jesus speaks right away in verse 17 about the law, the law and the prophets. So what is the law of God? If you were Jewish, it would be common for you to use several different words interchangeably to talk about the same thing. You might use the word Torah to speak of the first five books of the Old Testament, or you would summarize all of the Old Testament with the terminology of the law and the prophets. Notice how in verse 17, Jesus speaks of the law or the prophets. When he says law or the prophets, he is speaking cumulatively about the Old Testament. Jesus is here in the first century. The Old Testament era has ended, and Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. And when he speaks of the law, he's just talking about the law of God in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know how many of you have set out with fervor and sincerity to read the Bible in the year, maybe at the beginning of a new year, maybe you start reading Genesis and you say, wow, this is interesting, but then you start to get bogged down in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and there's all these laws, right? All these commandments, all these regulations. And as Christian believers, we need to know what's that stuff all about? Well, the stuff is the law of God. And if you want a very basic understanding of what the law of God is, we speak of the law of God as having three different divisions or three different functions or applying to three different areas of the life of humanity. The law of God has three divisions. The law is civil, meaning the law has reference to the organizing community of the people of God in the Old Testament called Israel. And God gave Israel a civil law through which their life together was constituted in an orderly society. The law of God had a civil function for the, the people of Israel to order their society. 
The law of God also has a ceremonial function. We speak of the law of God as the civil law, but also the ceremonial law. When you're reading through the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you read about sacrifices and offerings and you read about the involvement of life in the temple where people would come and worship and bring their sacrifices, that all has to do with the division of law we call the ceremonial law where God regulates how Israel is to worship him in the context of the temple or earlier the tabernacle where God is worshiped according to sacrifices. So the law of God has a function for the the civil societal life of Israel. It has a function for the ceremonial worshiping life of Israel. But the law of God also has a moral function in which Israel is taught what it means to live and please God. The civil law the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The moral law is the Ten Commandments, where God explains in two different tables what it means to love God and love neighbor. Jesus summarizes that in the New Testament when he's asked, uh, what what is the most important law or what is true? And Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the moral law of God. So, again, very quickly, the law of God has three functions. The civil life of social Israel as a people, the ceremonial life of Israel as a worshiping people, and the moral law for all people. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. And Jesus is here speaking about, when you move into the New Testament, what of the civil law? What of the ceremonial law? What of the moral law? What does the Old Testament law have to do with my life as a New Testament Christian? But in the first century, people weren't asking the question that way because they were still living under the law and they needed to know, what are we supposed to do with all of this? Jesus is here explaining what God's law has to do with your life if you're going to be his follower how the law of God relates to your life if you're going to be his follower. So that's what the law is. Now, Jesus is saying, here's what the law means for you and for your life. Here is a description of the law of God in the life of a Christian. And he is saying three things. And you see them there on your handout. I've tried to summarize them as as best I could. We want to see what Jesus is saying so that we can understand this vital importance of what the law of God is supposed to do in our lives. So, what is Jesus saying about the law of God and life of the Christian? First of all, he says this. When I come, when Christ comes, it doesn't mean the law goes. When Christ comes to earth, it doesn't mean that the law of God goes away. Look at verse 17 again. He says very clearly, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. Again, Jesus is going to be regularly accused of overthrowing the law throughout his ministry, but he is saying that Jesus' relationship to the law of God is not one of overthrowing the law, not one of abolishing the law, but actually fulfilling the law. He says that in verse 17. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them, that is the law and the prophets. So he's saying, Everything about the Old Testament isn't canceled when I come. 
It's shown to be what it really means. It is fulfilled. Now, just if you don't mind, go back to Matthew chapter 1 and let's look at a few things very quickly to show how important this language of fulfillment is. Jesus says, I'm not coming to abolish the law. I'm coming to fulfill it. Everything that Matthew is reporting about Jesus is reported with this language of fulfillment. Look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. When he explains about the birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1, 22, that all this took place to what? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Citing Isaiah, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew is pointing out that when Jesus comes, he is coming in fulfillment. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. This is in fulfillment of what is written again by the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He is introducing this to us in verse 5 as that which is written by the prophet. Matthew is explaining that Jesus is fulfilling this word. Still in chapter 2, in verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15 that Jesus has going to Egypt under protection of his parents, and they, verse 15, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And there are more and more. Verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 23, you see it again. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so what Matthew is doing as he is presenting the Lord Jesus to us in his opening chapters of the account of Jesus is he is connecting the vital relationship between the Old and the New Testament. And Jesus is saying, when we get back to Matthew chapter 5, that everything about the Old Testament is important because it was talking about me. And I have come to do and fulfill exactly what the Old Testament promises. Jesus is coming to obey and explain what all that Old Testament was about. Old Testament believers knew and sought to obey the law, but they did not really understand what the law was all about until Christ comes, because Christ comes to explain the true purpose of the law. So, if you have ever in your life picked up the Bible, looked at the Old Testament, and been a little bit confused, what is the Old Testament all about, ultimately? Christ himself. In the Bible, the gospel is promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. In the gospel, the Jesus is promised and fulfilled. Promised and fulfilled is the relationship between Old and New Testament. And that's why Jesus says in verse 18, Matthew 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what that means is that the Old Testament does not go away. It is not dismissed. The law of God is not canceled because Christ came, because Christ came to fulfill the law, not to cancel it. Now, a very brief side note here. I want you to understand, 
is that Jesus believes that the Old Testament is the Word of God. Jesus believes in the inspiration of the Bible. And he says here, not an iota, not a dot. Uh, In the Greek alphabet, iota is the smallest letter. And he's saying, the Old Testament, there's not a T that is going to be left uncrossed. There is not an I that is not going to be dotted until I accomplish all that the law of God is speaking of. And when Jesus comes, he is coming to fulfill the civil and ceremonial law and accomplish righteousness for us so that we might live not under the curse of the law, but under its blessing. But very clearly, when Christ comes, it doesn't mean the law goes. He says that very clearly. Secondly, if we're going to live in his kingdom, if we're going to be sincere Christian disciples, He's going to explain to us here that what you and I believe about God's law, about God's word, is actually going to be a very accurate measuring stick for what we believe about God himself. What you believe about God's law reveals what you really believe about God. Because it's possible to give lip service to our faith in God. But do we obey him? What we believe about the law shows what we believe about God. To despise the law is to despise the giver of the law. Look again at verse 19. Jesus says, because the law won't pass away and because I haven't come to abolish it, it's there to be obeyed. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That if we relax the law, if we are believing that we're supposed to ignore it and teach others to do the same, that is not faithful Christian living. But instead, if we love and keep even the least of the Lord's commandments and encourage other people to do the same, it is actually a sure mark that you belong in Christ's kingdom. If you love the law of God, if you love God's word, it is a mark that you belong to Christ and have a citizenship in his kingdom. As David said, O Lord, how I love your law. To obey God is to display that you have a God. If you believe that you have a God who created you, who called you into existence, who brought salvation to you, then you will live in such a way to demonstrate the reality of your salvation as you obey the God who made you. Or a simpler way of saying that is the way Jesus says it in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you have linked together in in the way you think about God, love and obedience? Or do you think God's love is for the purpose of setting you free to do whatever you want? Your parents love you and call you to obey them because they know what's best for you. You demonstrate your love for them through obedience. And it is not dissimilar with God himself so when Christ comes doesn't mean the law goes secondly what we believe about the law shows what we believe about God and third in summary format grace and obedience are friends and not enemies 
this is the most important one, perhaps. Grace and obedience are friends, not enemies. What does this mean? Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Jesus is speaking very directly in summary format to this section. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that grace and obedience go together. What he's saying in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds. Now, this is a staggering statement. If you were in the first century and listening to this, you would have been awestruck. Your jaw would have dropped because it was often said that if there are only two people who make it to heaven, it's going to be a teacher of the law and a Pharisee. They're the best. They are the professional religious people, if you like. Because the law of God has some 248 regulations and 365 prohibitions, salvation was thought to be only for the professionals, the best kinds of people. But here is Jesus saying in verse 20 that your righteousness, whoever you are, your righteousness must be better than these so-called professionals. And it's a little bit hidden here in the English language. It's a bit more emphatic in the Greek. When he says exceeds, he's actually saying not only must it be better, like a little bit better, he is saying exceedingly more, infinitely greater than those scribes and Pharisees. And what he means is this, that throughout the gospel accounts, we read that these Pharisees are those who have the wrong understanding of the law. They think that their law-keeping is what saves them. They think that their obedience is what gains them acceptance before God. And when Jesus comes and says, your righteousness must be better than theirs, he is saying two things that are both very shocking because nobody was more externally righteous than them. How could we, Jesus, possibly be more sincere than those types of people? But he is saying that your righteousness as a Christian, you must exceed the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees have by possessing a true righteousness rather than their false righteousness. Your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees in the kind of righteousness that you have, a true righteousness, not a false righteousness. And then when you have a true righteousness and when you possess it, you must indeed exceed the Pharisees in the display of true righteousness. So your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees in the kind of righteousness that you have. And then once you have that, you must exceed the righteousness in display. Or to say, Jesus is calling you to live a sincere Christian life, not just on the outside, not just ceremonially so that other people will see and say, what a wonderful person you are. Aren't they so righteous? That would be like the Pharisees. Jesus is calling you to have not a formal external relationship with God through his law, but a sincere 
internal relationship with God through his law so that the righteousness that you possess through faith would be true and it would change your life in such a way that you would display true righteousness. So, here is this application of the fact that Jesus calls us to walk this narrow road. What, what does the law of God have to do with your life as a Christian? God issues all of these laws, these commands. Are you supposed to keep them? What happens when you break them? What are you supposed to do with them? As a Christian believer, God's law doesn't change. But the Christian believer has a changing relationship with God's law. The law of God still communicates God's character, his perfect holiness. And when we look at it, we are called to obey it as a rule of life for morality, not to earn our salvation, but because we have been freely given it and we love God. So, Christian, Jesus is calling you to walk on this narrow road. And you are tempted to fall into one of two ditches. On the one hand, there is a ditch that says, my relationship with God is a relationship that is law without grace. Meaning, I want God to accept me, so I obey so that he will. Law without grace is called legalism. It's the religion of the Pharisees. It's the religion that says, I want to make sure I'm doing enough good things on the outside so that people will see me as righteous, so that I will, in a sense, bargain with God so that he will accept me. Law without grace says the gospel is the good news of my obedience. That's law without grace. That's a ditch on one side, and many people fall into it, don't they? They think that God will not love them today because yesterday they failed to do X, Y, and Z. That God's love is forsaken from me. Law without grace. On the other side, and equally as dangerous, you see on your insert, law without grace is over here. On the other ditch is grace without law. This is also dangerous because it says... Jesus gives me grace when I sin, so I should sin as much as I possibly can because it doesn't matter how I live because there's grace to cover my sin. My life doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. That gospel is the gospel of licentiousness, immorality, the gospel that says, Life is about hedonism and doing whatever I want because at the end of the day, I'm going to mail in the fact that I've got fire insurance in the gospel. Is that correct? But do you see how it's an equally opposing, wrong understanding of the gospel? Law without grace says I obey and therefore I'm accepted. Grace without law says I don't need to do anything. And they're both wrong. They're both wrong. And right down the middle is true and sincere gospel obedience that says, God has shown his love for me in his son. He has changed my life and forgiven my sins. And therefore, I will obey out of love for him. Or think of it this way. We are in the family of God. And in the family of God, just like in your family, I imagine there are some house rules. 
There are things that we do in this family that distinguish us from those who are not in this family. Just because other families do certain things, it doesn't mean that we will. These house rules dictate how our life operates together as a family, and your obedience to these rules doesn't earn you a place in the household. Why? Because you're already in the family. You're in the family by grace, and so your obedience to these rules don't make you a member of the household. You already are by grace. And on the other side, if you disobey these rules, it doesn't mean you are kicked out of the family. It means you are called to live in love of the family name and so obey moving forward. We walk this path of gospel obedience, not having law without grace and not having grace without law, but gospel obedience. So what should you do with Jesus's words here? This is very important. Jesus's words invite us to, to take a look to be a bit spiritually introspective about my life. My claim that my sins are covered by the blood of Christ means that not only are my sins forgiven, but that I have also been given a new life and a new nature, which means that Jesus has died and risen for me and is being formed in me, that I am being changed, that the Spirit of God is dwelling in me and making me more like Jesus. Listen very carefully. The gospel is both the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of your life. And if transformation is not present and is of no concern, you should begin to question the reality of the forgiveness of your life. Grace and obedience are not opposed to each other. They go together. The gospel is not the good news that you have your sins forgiven so you can do whatever you want. The gospel is also not the good news that you get in by your obedience. The gospel is the good news that Christ has done all that is necessary and obeyed the law on your behalf so that you don't have to obey in order to be accepted. You are accepted in Christ. You press forward in obedience, not to earn, but because you have been freely given. So, dear friend, do you delight to do the will of God? Is God's law pleasing to you? Do you love to obey God? To the true Christian believer, the commandments of God are not a burden. They are a delight. You want to keep them because you love God, because you love the law of God. So, landing the plane. This is what you and I are called to do when we approach this table. This is how we should approach the table because the Apostle Paul calls us to examine ourselves we should ask the Spirit of God to search our hearts and illuminate those dark corners in which we love to hide and ask the Lord to expose those corners and bring His light into them so that we can turn from our sins and lead a more sincere, obedient Christian life. Not to earn salvation, 
but because it has already been given freely and I want to show my love for God. So if you find, if you feel that spiritual weight in which you have maybe lived in one ditch or the other for one reason or another and you feel the need to repent, dear friend, do so. Turn away from those things and lay hold of Christ as he offers you forgiveness and the strength to press on. He will strengthen you to live in grace that you have been freely given. So, as you, through grace, take the bread and take the cup, these emblems of your Savior's dying love, hear him say to you two things. One, your sins are surely forgiven. And secondly, I am supplying for you all the strength that you need to press on in a sincere, obedient Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that Jesus Christ does not cancel the law, but he fulfills it on our behalf so that we might be enabled to live in obedience to you an obedience that is free and full and gracious and delightful. And so, Lord, help us to understand these things because it is so easy to be off track. Lord, give us the grace that we need to walk faithfully. And, Lord, with your Spirit, search our hearts, we pray, and then lead us to Christ in all of his fullness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.